Samuel 19, 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, who was of Bahurim, hasted and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons, and his 20 servants with him. And they went through the Jordan in the presence of the king. And there went over a ferry boat to bring over the king's household and to do what he thought good. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he was come over the Jordan. And he said unto the king, Let not my lord impute iniquity unto me. Neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my lord the king went out of Jerusalem, that the king should take it to his heart. For thy servant doth know that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I am come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed Jehovah's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? that ye should this day be adversaries unto me. Shall there any man be put to death this day in Israel? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said unto Shimei, Thou shalt not die. And the king swore unto him. As Shimei rehearses in this speech, this plea, to David, he reminds us and he reminds himself and he reminds David of his miserable behavior. When David was weeping and leaving Jerusalem with Absalom, moving into Jerusalem to take it over and seeking his life, his own son seeking his life and David weeping with his, his feet bare and his head uncovered or his head covered and, and departing with the relative few that remained with him out of Jerusalem. And this Shimei, the son of Gera, this Benjamite, comes running along a, a hill alongside of David and his entourage, and he's cursing him, and he's calling him names, and he's accusing him of sins that he didn't commit. David knew the sins that he had committed, however. But Shimei is casting all these aspersions at David. And as I said, he's cursing and throwing stones at him. Can you imagine Shimei, after having behaved that way toward the king, and then to discover through whatever manner that Absalom is dead, the rebellion is over, the king is going to be returning. So he makes a point of being among the first to meet King David as he crosses with his family and with his army crosses the Jordan and he makes a point of being there among the first to greet the king. But can you imagine how he was feeling the trepidation and the fear and the consternation that Shimei must have been experiencing as he came and fell down before the king pleading for mercy and confessing his faults. 
Many of us, perhaps all of us, in some way or other, have come to that place in our lives by God's grace when we had it made known to us that we had blasphemed the King of glory, the Son of God, the perfect Redeemer, the man who had no sin in him at all, the absolutely holy one of Israel. And we look back upon days of our lives when, in a sense, we cast stones at him. And we cast out aspersions against his name. And we refused to bow down to him. And cursed him. Did we not find ourselves in a place subsequently when by his grace the king came back? He came to seek his own. And by his grace he sought out us. And what was our reaction when we knew, when we were confronted by the one that we have cursed and as one prayed, spit upon perhaps, and disparaged and hated his word and hated his people and would have none of him. Were we not like Shimei? Now what do we do? Now what do we do? I think that we see in Shimei's reaction, in Shimei's response, in his plea, and in his behavior. I think we see here what I've titled the way of life, or as it is told to us in Acts eleven eighteen, after Peter has given an account to those of the circumcision about what happened and explaining why he went to Cornelius when summoned and why he mixed himself with the Gentiles. And he told them that whole account, the sheet being lowered and so on, that vision that God gave to him. And after he had given this whole account and how that the spirit had fallen upon these Gentiles even as it had fallen on us, he said, then those that were in the hearing of that account praised God and said, now we see that repentance unto life has been granted unto the Gentiles. And many Gentiles among us praise God for that reality and that fact. I would submit that Repentance is essential as faith is essential. It's an essential to the way of life in Christ. Confession of sin is brought about by repentance and is part of that return as Shimei demonstrates. And forgiveness by God's grace is the experience of the elect sinner when he repents and confesses his sin. And he's given life eternal. Repentance, confession, forgiveness, life, life eternal. Repent or perish, the words of our Savior himself. Repentance is essential. 
Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7 that godly sorrow worketh repentance. Godly sorrow is what God has chosen to employ to work repentance in his chosen people, those for whom Christ has died to save those who he came to save through his own blood. God speaks in Hosea 13, 14. He says, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are thy plagues? O Sheol, where is thy destruction? Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. And many of you, I'm sure, recognize that Paul has cited this passage essentially in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, when he wrote, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is hid from mine eyes. John Gill said, that is, the Lord will never repent of his decree of redemption from hell, redemption from death, redemption from the grave, all through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will never repent of that covenant that he made with our Lord Jesus Christ to save his people. Paul believed that this meant that God would never alter his covenant promise to Christ and those for whom Christ died. He would never alter it. His eyes are hid from any sort of repentance, any sort of change, any sort of alteration. He promised and he has been performing and will perform this promise for those for whom Christ died. John Gill believed it. So does every believer. Understand and believe that Christ died in the room of sinners who deserved death. Jesus was speaking in Luke 13, as I alluded to when I said, repent or perish. These are the rest of his words in that one line. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, think ye that they were offenders or sinners above all the men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He's saying except ye repent because you are all sinners as well. Truly repent, we might add. Truly repent or truly perish. Was Shimei's repentance true? Well, that may fairly be a question in our minds and thoughts as we read this description of his coming to David. Was it true and what does feigned or make-believe repentance look like? We have an example of it in the repentance, quote-unquote, of Ahab. Remember King Ahab and how he was even weeping because he wanted the vineyard of Naboth. And Naboth wouldn't sell it to him because it was against the law. 
it was against the laws of his tribe to sell any land to anyone outside of his tribe, so he refused. And Nadab went and laid down in bed and was crying like a baby. His wife, even more evil than himself, devised a plan whereby they could get Naboth's vineyard. Of course, it was going to cost Naboth his life, which it did. Which it did, and then Naboth went and took possession of that vineyard, and he was met by the word of God. Even as I've been suggesting that many of us have been met by the word of God because of sins that we had committed against others and against God when we committed sins against others. In 1 Kings 21, we read these words about this, again, quote-unquote, repentance. And it came to pass, Elijah pronounced the consequences to Ahab of his sin in having Naboth killed. The consequences... And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. He walked softly. And the word of Jehovah came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days the evil that was pronounced by Elijah just moments before. But I will bring it in his son's days. I will bring the evil upon his house. Because Ahab humbleth himself, and God even gives some kind of respect to that humbling, that walking softly. However, renting one's clothes is not repentance. Putting sackcloth upon his flesh was not repentance, not true repentance. Fasting is not repentance. Laying in sackcloth is not repentance. Walking about softly is not repentance. Many have walked on eggshells, as the expression goes, after a fault was found in them. But that's not repentance. Walking softly is not repentance. These things may be some sort of evidences of repentance, but they are not repentance. They are not the repentance that even Jesus Christ demands and God the Father demands and God the Holy Spirit provides. But these things are not repentance. Repentance is turning from sin. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. Repentance is hating sin and loving God. This other is that that Paul speaks of is that repentance that needs to be repented of. Repentance that needs to be repented of. It's not true repentance, and it itself needs to be repented of, or it brings regret, as some translations translate it. It's that repentance that itself brings the need of repentance. This is that sorrow of the world 
that Paul refers to that works death. You think of Judas Iscariot. We read of Judas Iscariot. Then Judas, who betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. This repentance of Judas is not the same as the repentance of Peter. We read almost side by side in in the gospel account of Judas repenting of what he had done, of Peter repenting of denying his Lord and Savior. They both denied Christ, did they not? And they both betrayed Christ in their own way, did they not? But we read that when he saw that he was condemned, and most understand that to mean that when he saw that Christ, although the word, the name isn't in the text, that when he saw that he was condemned, when he saw that Christ was condemned, he repented himself. This repentance of Judas, this repentance of Peter, there is a sense of similarity, as I've said, but the differences are rather glaring, are they not? Peter denied the one that he himself, Peter, had declared was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He responded to Christ's inquiry, who do men say that I am? Judas denied one whom he knew only as a promising rabbi. With all he had seen, with all he had heard, with all he had witnessed, he didn't know him. And he betrayed him. And we see the difference in their repentance. Judas tried to free himself of the responsibility of what he had done by throwing the money back at those who had paid him for his betrayal. Peter, on the other hand, went out and wept bitterly. Peter's godly sorrow worked repentance. Judas's sorrow of the world worked death. Guilt or consequence, that's the distinction between real repentance and false repentance. Judas did not experience guilt, not true guilt. All he had in mind was the consequence of what he had done. Just like Ahab, when he had this curse, as it were, pronounced upon him and his household. So all he was concerned about was the consequence. He didn't bring to his mind or a heart that he had murdered a man created in God's image and stolen through that murder the property that he wanted. He was only concerned about the consequence. No felt guilt for sin, but only fear of the consequences. That's the difference. Had there been any spring One wrote, of true repentance, its waters would have been unsealed long before this, in the case of Judas. It would have been unsealed long before this at the table 
of the Lord when it was ordained. Or when in the garden he heard his master's last appeal of love. The waters would have been unsealed and he would have wept as Peter, but they weren't. Not love, but fear. Not godly sorrow, but very human terror is what moves him now. And therefore it is not to Jesus that he flies. Listen to what this man wrote. It's not to Jesus Christ that he flies. His eyes haven't been opened. He still doesn't see Jesus as the Son of God. He doesn't fly to Jesus. And this writer suggests that had he even now gone up to him and fallen at his feet as Shimei did before his king and confessed his sin, he would have been forgiven. But he didn't. He didn't fly to Christ, the Savior of sinners. He didn't fly to Christ, the Son of God. He didn't fly to Christ, the Messiah. He flew to the temple and threw those 30 pieces of silver back at them, hoping that they would take them up and that that would exonerate him somehow, for he had some sort of fear of the consequences but he wasn't experiencing any of the guilt for what he had done to the Savior of the world. Shimei also bowed himself down, we read here. And that's part of this confession and contrition and humbling that is active in true repentance. And yes, as we already suggested, it can be active in feigned repentance. but he prostrates himself before King David. And we may well ask ourselves, did not our king accept this prostration? Individuals falling down before him. We think of the first chapter of Revelation. When John fell at his feet as one dead, we don't hear those words that we hear on some occasions. Stand up, I'm just a man like you. He accepted the worship. He accepted the prostration because he is God. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Holy One. And he accepted this because of that. It was properly given to him, this worship. He didn't refuse it. Like Peter pointed out to those in Acts 10.26. Stand up, he said. See, I myself am also a man. Christ is the God-man. The only Savior of sinners. Paul and Barnabas, you remember in Acts 14. At Lystra. Some started, started calling Barnabas Mercury and Paul Jupiter. Or maybe I've got that inverted but they started treating them as gods and were told that they scarcely restrained the multitudes from doing sacrifice to them. Sacrifice, worship. But we remember when Joshua, in Joshua 5, when the prince of the host of Jehovah came to him, he bowed down to him and he wasn't told not to do that. He fell on his face to the earth 
in the prince of the host of Jehovah, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ accepted that worship, even as Moses at the burning bush took his shoes off his feet as he approached that burning bush. Shimei's plea, Shimei's plea, let not my Lord impute iniquity unto me, neither do remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my Lord the king went out of Jerusalem, that the king should take it to his heart, for thy servant doth know that I have sinned. Let not my Lord impute iniquity unto me. Don't remember what I did perversely. Does this not strike a familiar chord with us? How about David's own expressions when he wrote Psalm 32? Blessed is the man unto whom Jehovah imputeth not iniquity. Blessed is the man unto whom Jehovah imputeth not iniquity. I won't impute your iniquity unto you because I have imputed it unto my son. I have laid it upon my son, the Lamb of God. And therefore it's not imputed to you, child of God. And how about another Psalm? 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. A Psalm of David, verse 12. God puts away our sin as far as the east is from the west. In other words, he doesn't remember it against us ever again. Shimei is pleading the same things that David spoke of in his psalms. He's pleading the same things that we all have pleaded when we came to Christ, when we were brought to Christ through the regenerating power of God the Holy Spirit, when we were given the gift of faith and repentance that caused us to confess our sin and to plead for forgiveness. He forgave us for Jesus' sake. And he, ha he doesn't impute our sin to us because he imputed it to his son. And he doesn't remember it anymore against us because he's cast it into the depths of the deepest sea. Here Shimei is pleading these very same pleas that we ourselves, in one way or another, pleaded with God for Christ's sake that he wouldn't impute our sin to us and that he would not remember them against us. There are skeptics, and we probably have to confess that every one of us has been a skeptic at one time or another when we've seen someone declare that they've become saved, that they have become a child of God, that they are no longer what they once were, that they are now Christians. And perhaps we even question, as we might shimmyize repentance, perhaps we question them because they don't dot all their I's the same as we do, or because they don't cross all their T's the way we do. And we challenge them. We're skeptics like Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, again, as he had done before. Let me go off and take off the head of this man. He didn't accept Shimei's expressions of repentance. Nor did he place any weight upon his bowing down to the king. He was certain that Shimei ought to lose his head for all the blasphemies that he had spouted against David, the king of Israel. 
Jehovah's anointed. Not David. Here, <laughs> he beautifully types out Jesus Christ. The compassionate, forgiving Son of God. There will always be doubters. We can only try not to be doubters ourselves. I'm not calling for us to be naive either. Because there are false believers. <coughs> false professors. And so there's a certain argument for having reservations. But we can't just question out of hand someone's profession of faith. We're not behaving like Christ if we do that. I mean, what was it that we read? What did we read at the table? At the table, when Jesus said to his disciples, one of you will betray me. What did they all say? Is it me? Is it me? Did they start pointing fingers? No. Is it me? It was the question they asked. Who is it? Did he tell you who it was? Is it me? It's all of us. David declares in response from his place as king, thou shalt not die. Thou shalt not die. You're a wicked sinner. But God has given you a new heart. You shall not die. What lovely words. Thou shalt not die. I pray God we've all heard that. In our hearts. When God brought us. To regeneration. To repentance. Confession. Faith in him. Forgiveness. And knowing that we have life eternal. Thou shalt. Not die. Shall there be any man put to death this day in Israel? Do I not know that this day I am king? Christ Jesus is king. He's the head of his church. He is the Lord of all. And when he says, thou shalt not die, you will not die. If your trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, the Son of God, the Lamb that God has provided to ransom, to redeem his people. Thou shalt not die. Thou shalt not die because I have died. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death thought to swallow Christ up. You understand that? Death thought to swallow Christ up. Satan thought he had won the day. But Christ swallowed death up. It's as though one preacher I heard said that when death tried to swallow that perfectly sinless being, our Lord Jesus Christ, when death tried to swallow him, it was as though the holiness, the perfection tickled the throat of death and it vomited him up. It vomited the Holy One up. It could not retain him. And Christ swallowed death up. 
rather than death swallowing him up and death won't swallow us up for that same reason. Because of Jesus Christ, he swallowed up death in victory. Praise God for Jesus Christ. 